Blog Talk Radio. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the People's Medicine Show. This is a semi-regular show. I usually do it on the first uh, Thursday of each month. Uh, my name is Sean. I'm the host. I'm an amateur, novice, intermediate herbalist. I enjoy doing this show. It's on the Susan Weed Blog Talk Radio channel, which can be found on blogtalkradio.com backslash Susan Weed. So that's where you would go if you ever want to uh, join the show live uh, during the live taping, which is uh, today is Thursday, February 6th, 2020. And happy 2020 to everyone. So I think I'm going to uh, start the show um, broadcasting today from the south side of the Big Island of Hawaii. And I've been living here for a few years now, and I'm always discovering new music. Uh, this is from a Hawaiian big band, um, band, big band style, big band. And their name of the band is called Kahu Lanui. K-H-K-A-H-U-L-A-N-U-I, Kahulanui, and it's called The Eating of the Poi, so I hope you enjoy it. It it popped out at me. I said, I'm going to play that on the show this month, so let's start the show. A curious thing I've seen Which takes the shining completely off The wearing of the green Potatoes constitute a dish That Irish men enjoy But it can't hold a candle to The eating of the poor I met a fat Karnaka And he asked me to his holly A mallow and a pump pollay. I bought a mat cross leg and we sat and there and then my boy. I was initiated in the eating of the poi. Oh my boy, my boy. Boy, my boy will make a man of you. Oh my boy, my boy. Boy, my boy will make a man of you. Between us stood Kukui in a dish And in another one Some animated shrimp and fish We pitched in and did The culinary employ The fingers is the instrument For eating of the boys You dip it in and stir it around Tis difficult to learn Harder to describe the proper scientific term. Sometimes one finger, sometimes two, and sometimes three employ. According to your appetite, when eating of the boy. Oh, my boy, my boy, boy, my boy will make a man of you. Oh, my boy, my boy, boy, my boy will make a man of you. Oh, 
them a little bit more right here. To unaccustomed life it has a most peculiar taste. The people even say it tastes like oh berry paste. But when you've cleaned a calabash, you want to hear more. And soon get fat as butter just from eating of the boy. Oh my boy, my boy, boy, my boy will make a man of you. Oh my boy, my boy, boy, my boy will make a man out of you. Yeah. The next paella you thought was going to teach you how to eat the paella. <laughs> So if you'd like to interact with the show, you can call in. We have a call-in number, which is 646-929-2463. You can also communicate with me. My name is Sean at peoplesmedicineshow at gmail.com. So I have a little bit of a show planned for today. I have about six clips, and five of them are dedicated to the opening topic, which I think is pretty strong, which is uh, feeling... Um, discovering and using our feeling sense, and um, I don't I don't really know how to explain it. That's why I I clipped this following podcast from 2014. It's called the Rewilding Podcast, and the host is Daniel Vitalis, and he asks the guest Stephen Buner, uh, celebrated uh, author and herbalist, and he. he describes himself as an earth poet, and the show is from September 2014, and it's uh, available at DanielVitalis.com, the Rewild Yourself podcast, but I, I may have played clips from this um, previously, but I heard it this month, and it struck me really strong, and I was like, I think I should uh, make some clips of that and share it on this month's blog talk show. So we'll start with... Um, one of the questions that Daniel asked was he leads uh, wild treks and plant walks for people, and people will often fly to his home in Maine, and he, he was asking um, Mr. Buner, Stephen Buner, uh, how do you get people like that are just coming in from an, the airport, like acclimated to an area? <laughs> and I was looking for that question. I thought it was an excellent question, you know, to how to get people sort of adjusted. Because I often feel very ungrounded uh, after going on an airplane. So um, some of these um, following clips um, may enlighten us on how to do that and how to be uh, guided by our feelings and to know uh, let me let, let me just start playing the clips, and we'll um, maybe we'll have more to discuss later. But please call in or write me some emails, and um, enjoy the clips. One of the things I talk about in detail in the book, there's some really good research out there that, that if they have people focus on the form of something, like if they show them a bunch of words and they say, you know, um, how many vowels are in this word, or are, you know, um, which of these words ends in a consonant, which of these words ends in a vowel, and they keep showing them stuff like that. The people begin to focus on the form, not the meaning, 
and they'll do this, do this, do this, and then all of a sudden right in the middle of it, they'll put up a word and they'll say, what does this word mean? And the people can't figure out what it means for a while. They have to shift out of that surface orientation. Then they can go, ah, the meaning is this. Mm. So the point of that is that we're trained to orient ourselves towards surfaces. You know, how things look, how things appear, you know, and, and this whole dynamic, it, then it, it, we get a template that keeps us from orienting ourselves toward meaning. And that's one of the major things that has to be undone because once you begin opening sensory gating channels, the very first thing that you'll start to encounter are the meanings that flow through the world. We're surrounded, we, we're immersed in not only in fields of visual inputs or sound inputs, but also of meaning inputs. And, you know, the Kalahari Bushmen, I quote them a number of times in the book, and there's some marvelous stuff that the elders would say, like, for instance, you know, tell your people they must wake up twice in the morning. Once when they get out of bed... <laughs> And secondly, they must awaken their heart to the touch of the world upon them. They must spend every day building a library of feelings. And then so this guy that I'm quoting says, yeah, I respond as I have before. Well, you know, the people in my culture don't know that feelings are real. And she goes, do they keep bumping into feelings and meanings that they don't know what they are? Do they then tell their hearts to go back to sleep every minute of the day? Oh, that was great. So those, wow. that template to reorient ourselves away from surfaces toward the meanings of things. And so there's a variety of ways that this can be done. Now, neuronostics or hallucinogens, that's one thing that will do it. Um, meditation can also do it. Um, falling in love with an art that you do, because art for it to really work um, has to have a feeling component to it so that when you encounter it, it generates a feeling response in you, which is different, emo- it's different than emotions. It's, uh, it's how the thing feels. And the feeling of things connects us to meanings. That's the function of feelings. And I quote Alice Walker in there, one of this, these great observations she had from years ago. She said, the first time an old black granny in Alabama said her greens tasted like water, the whole country should have ground to a halt. Because one of the ways the universe teaches us about things that are safe for us or good for us is through our sense of taste. And we've now eaten poison tastes by the ton, right? Which is great. But what's also true, the feeling we get from places or events that we're in tell us about their deeper nature. They tell it, it communicates to us the meaning of the place of the event that we're in and it allows us to then craft responses that are dealing with what's really going on. But of course, as we've been convinced that the feeling sense doesn't exist, we've now eaten poison feelings by the time. And oh. people immerse themselves in scenarios where the aesthetic sense is so, you know, if your aesthetic sense was functioning, you would be able to tell that the event that you're in is not a healthy or good one. So one of the things I've encouraged people to do for years is to begin to reclaim the feeling sense, to 
everything that they encounter, they go, how does this chair feel? Not when you sit in, but you look at it, you focus on it, then you go, how does it feel? And you'll get this burst of feeling sense, a mood to the thing, and then you'll know whether you like it or not. So how does this hospital feel? Mm. How does this medicine that they've told you to take feel? How does this doctor feel? How does this communication that you're getting from somebody feel? Once you start doing that, you know, most kids, when they go to school, they walk in and they go, this place feels horrible, let's leave, and they go, oh, no, sorry, you have to stay here for the next 14 years. <laughs> and after a while, automatically, your feeling sense has to deaden so that you can continue to remain in a place that, by nature, is not supportive of fundamental life in a human being. Okay, so that was uh, a clip from Stephen Buhner on the Rewilding podcast from 2014. And he was referring to his book that he wrote, and I believe since it was 2014, his book was called Plant, it is called Plant Intelligence and the Imaginal Realm Beyond the Doors of Perception into the Dreaming of Earth. So really cool title. I have not read the book, but I've, I've really enjoyed this podcast. And uh, thank you, Daniel, for putting it out there and keeping it up on the Internet. It's a two-hour interview, but I figured um, the things that popped out at me, I made clips of, and I'm going to continue to um, play them on the show, and perhaps I'll have uh, some more meaningful comments. So I'm going to play the next clip. Well, yeah, it is. And, I mean, one of the things that happens is airports and air travel – it's one of the more gruesome events that anybody can encounter anymore. I mean, it was bad enough before 9-11. Now, it's, it's, I mean, it's basically, it's a horrible proctology exam of 14,000 feet or 30,000 feet, you know, that goes on and on and on. You're never going to get out of there. So people begin to just shut down their feeling sense just because they, they have to endure it and get through it. And if they were feeling everything, paying attention to the meanings that were coming into them, it would be extremely difficult to survive the process. So um, that's got a huge element that's part of the dynamic you're talking about there. But in general, the thing that I've recommended to people for you know 30 years at least is that whole feeling thing about how does this feel and what I suggested that people do and it really does have a huge impact is that they begin slowly going through everything in their house like how does this plant feel how does this umbrella feel how does this glass feel how do these plates feel you know it's like do you feel a kind of an aliveness and a happiness and a joy when you look at them or do you feel kind of depressed or whatever that you might feel? And that people then begin to replace everything that they own one <laughs> by one by one so that everything in the house possesses this kind of deeper luminosity, this wonderful feeling component to it. It's like I mean, Robert Bly had another great line. He was a tremendous influence on me. And another great line, he goes, 
the owl's dark eyelids conceal a luminosity that our reason cannot grasp. Mm. That's a nice line. And the thing is that everything that you have can have that kind of luminosity in its interior that the meaning component of it is so potent that when you get around it, 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 even though it might be just minimally in this arena, like for instance, we're walking through the woods and we come upon a great tree or a magnificent rock formation and we kind of stop and, and in that moment we can feel something from out there impacts us and we're pulled out of our sort of narcissistic self-orientation and feel this amazing thing coming into our interior experience. It's replacing everything that you have step by step by step so that everything contains some of that quality to it so that when you walk in your house, your senses just come alive, the feeling sense comes alive, and you sort of rest in that sort of powerful aesthetic um, communication that uplifts and feeds you. I mean, that the ancient Athenians said, the source of inspiration comes from outside of us. It is this moment of asthesis when there's a soul exchange between something outside of us and ourselves, and it's always accompanied by a gasp or a deep breathing in and inspiration mm. as, the, it's, as it's taken in. And that begins to change everything because your house no longer has any kind of quality of airport to it at all. Okay, so that uh, sort of answers my question of how um, to nurture ourselves where we're in a state of always in that feeling sense. And it, I was really happy to hear him um, describe a, a lot of what um, the Japanese declutter guru Marie Kondo describes as, um, you know, going through everything that you own and deciding yes or no. This makes me happy, this sparks joy in me, or no, it doesn't. And I suppose um, I, I, I remember reading, or I think I listened to the Marie Kondo book on YouTube, and she said, yeah, it could, it could take a process of six months to go through every single item that you own to um, make a decision. And I think a lot of people have um, a watered-down feeling like, oh, put that in the giveaway or I don't know pile or, you know, like, or instead of just saying yes or no to something. Um, no is a pretty simple answer, and I think a lot, of, a lot of us are afraid to say no when we can say no. And um, I, I, I love it, though. Um, it also brings to mind this um, book that I read oh, probably over 20 years ago. It's a lesbian-themed novel called uh, Terminal Velocity by Blanche McCrary Boyd. And I remember I was in a creative writing class, and she was one of the visiting authors, so we all read that book, because that was her new book at the time. And she describes, uh, she's on the road with their lover, and they're just living in a new place almost every day, you know, and they're just road tripping their asses off. But every place that they slept, they would pull out this, uh, like, six-by-nine oriental carpet that they had with them in the, in the vehicle, and they would always lay that out and establish their home every day. So that latest clip did remind me that, you know, there's perhaps things that we can um, bring with us during our travels that could keep us in sort of a familiar space and help us to um, come home to that, 
you know, feeling and comfort, you know, the familiarity of um, being in a home that we love and appreciate. So I uh, really enjoyed that clip, but I'm going to, let's keep going. I think there's about um, uh, maybe five more minutes of clips, and the next three are pretty short. So I'll uh, play the third clip that I clipped from the Daniel Vitalis Rewild podcast. When we do a reading like that, the very first burst that you get in response to the question, how does it feel, will be actually the feeling of the thing itself. And very quickly after that, if you haven't already trained yourself out of this process, very quickly after that, your mind will make a bunch of comments. Ah, got That's it. the thing that begins to come up afterwards that your own sort of um, reality police network will sort of come into play <laughs> there. You know, the thing is, everybody's going to be attracted to different feeling things. And as you change your house like this, I mean, it's a process of years. As you get more sophisticated in your feeling sense, there's a constant turnover of the things that you've put in your home um, so that it becomes more and more vital in that sense. And after a while, it's possible to then work, as you know, so that the events in your life, the friends in your life, the job in your life, that the items in your life that you are basically you've filled them with things with a tremendously high um, aesthetic quality to them that whenever you're around them you feel um, more uplifted, more alive, more excited to get out of bed, more sense of childlike wonder, more wanting to play um, and just be alive in the world. And you don't need to shut down because very little that's coming into you is something that feels so bad you don't want to feel it. So that bring, um, Daniel asked him a really wonderful question. Perhaps I should have clipped that question. And he was like, how do you determine what's your like rational mind, um, you know, that's opposing the feeling sense. And oftentimes our feeling sense does come from this irrational place. Um, for instance, you know, why did I move to Hawaii? It's um, something that I felt deeply since childhood, since um, the first time I, I seen Hawaii in a National Geographic. Um, I remember we had a coffee table book with all the national parks, and I remember just being so fixated on the Hawaii stuff. And uh, throughout my life, it's just always provoked this deep feeling, even though I sight unseen, I never was actually here until three or four years ago. So. Um, this is really starting to help me understand um, to you know that the feeling sense will lead before the rational mind says Hawaii. Do you know how expensive it is to live in Hawaii? You know it's four dollars for gas. You know, <laughs> and um, so I just wanted to uh, put that out there that um, I think at age 52 I'm being more and more guided by my feeling sense. And understanding that, yeah, we're giving rational minds to help us and to um, help um, adjust things, you know, to um, physical realities. So um, let's play the next clip. I think this one's a little bit longer. It's about three minutes. You know, Robert Heinlein was, he, he's, a, he's a funny kind of guy, and, you know, he had a lot of psychological problems. But he was also incredibly brilliant, and he came up with some just tremendous um, observations about things, and one of them is population problems 
have a horrible way of solving themselves. <laughs> you know, so basically, the other day I was thinking about this. Since 1980, there's an additional 100 million people in the United States. Okay, so now, for people born in the 80s or the early 90s, for them, it is just kind of normal. But for me, you know, I just turned 62, so feeling that increased population, a lot of the stuff that we're all struggling with in our culture now really is population pressures that are the culture doesn't really know how to deal with, and we don't have a track record of it. And so, there, you know, this huge surveillance state thing and everything that's going on, there's a lot of freneticness, and, you know, you can feel there's a lot of fear in people. They feel stuff is kind of out of hand, but they don't really know what to do. And just part of that is this huge influx throughout the information spectrum of media, whatever sort that people are, are working with. But again, the thing that really shifts that is to deal with the meanings of things. I mean, one of the things that people remark about my books is, you know, the information... I mean, look, we're drowning in information. Like, if information was going to change the world, the world would already be different because right. all the information is already there. It's obvious that information isn't the problem. It's something else. And so one of the things I worked to do in my books was to write them in such a way that it had a deep feeling experience for the people who were reading it. There's all these but there's all these people in the world now that are being born that have been born and been this way their entire life that they have more open gating channels they're aware of the aliveness of the world and they have experiences outside of what is considered the norm and they don't really know what to do with it or how to explain it and part of what i talk about in this book is that they are you know, the pressures on the human species are moving more and more of the population into opening their gating channels this way and starting to work with the aliveness and intelligence of the world. They just don't know what to do with it after. Mm -hmm. But once that's activated, if you're reading, you know, information on the Internet or whatever, and you just start to say, how does this feel? How does this feel? How does this feel? you start to be able to tell which information is bullshit and which information is right. not. So I just don't know how to add to that anymore. So I'm going to just move on to the next clip. There's a, a great um, sign carried by a French protester, a friend of mine told me about a few years ago. It said, the first act of disobedience is contemplation. <laughs> I love that. I thought, the French. You know, I mean, wouldn't it be great if we, we went to a protest in the United States and somebody had a sign like that? Here they just say, get a life moron, you know, stuff like that, you know. But the thing is, the first act of disobedience is paying attention to your feeling self, to how the, the place that you're in feels to you, the interaction... And that's, that is a kind of contemplation because you feel it and then you begin to think about it, to contemplate it, and then you begin to know what exactly is being directed to you, what's going on, and that begins to change everything. If you see to feel like that, 
also enhances the capacity for empathy. It enhances the capacity to care about the the surroundings that you're in, and in essence, to really get where we're going, as Einstein said, we need to use a different kind of thinking. We can't use the kind of thinking that created the problems that we're trying to solve. Now we have to use an entirely different kind of thinking, and that thinking is fundamentally embedded in the feeling sense. And as I've said in every workshop I've ever taught, to people, don't let anyone convince you that what you're feeling is not real. Mm-hmm. And that is the first massive act of disobedience on the road to becoming a true barbarian, to becoming rewilded as a human being, because you begin to work outside the accepted parameters of the software programs we've been given, and only there in that space outside those software programs can we find can our own interior genius give us clues to the solutions that we need to to successfully make it through this time in our history so that was uh steven buner again uh on the, from the rewilding podcasting um broadcast in 2014 let me uh, give you the episode number that's um episode number 13. so um it's a two-hour show but i gave us the cliff notes version which is plus my little commentary but um it really brings to mind how I'm being guided by my feeling sense. So I'm doing this show, this live broadcast once a month. Uh, I really had no um, mental um, outline of what exactly I wanted this show to be, but it's, it's sort of coming into its own where I spot things throughout the month and I make clips and I drop them on other people and ask for feedback. And um, that's what this show is. And, um, but my life in Hawaii has been amazing. I wanted to come here and work with uh, cannabis and psilocybin, and I wanted to find another uh, older herbalist to help me and to mentor me. And I just put myself out there. I, you know, got out of the house as often as I could and paid attention. And the person came along throughout my path, and um, I'm happy to report that I'm working regularly on a little permaculture farm that grows uh, CBD-rich cannabis, and I'm currently helping people, uh, introduce people in their middle age to uh, psilocybin. Many people who are using um, a lot of pain medications, uh, they're trying to use cannabis, and sometimes uh, cannabis is not working. And I've been very fortunate to... um, They've been guided by this feeling sense. And I met someone um, in the past month, and they were using lots and lots of edible cannabis, and I don't think they were under-medicating. And they just weren't quite getting the relief or the pain or the resolution. And just deep within me, I said, you need to try psilocybin. They're like, oh, yeah, everyone's telling me what to do. And I'm like... No, I'll help you. I I have some in my pocket right now. Here, take it home and use it in small amounts and combine it with other medicinal mushrooms like lion's mane and shiitake, maitake. And um, I was really happy to hear that Susan Weed seems to be onto that same thing, that um, the mushrooms seem to work really in conjunction when you use more than one type of mushroom. And 
I think Paul Stamets does agree that um, psilocybin and lion's mane really accentuate uh, one another, and he uses them both together. And uh, really sub, um, I don't know if the, this is the right word, subclinical, sub feeling, you know, I wouldn't actually call it a microdose either. But um, I guess we're going to come around to the low-dose psilocybin word where we'll all decide on what uh, low-dose is called because I'm not sure if microdosing is, is the right word for it. But I'm really happy to um, be uh, working on this permaculture farm and to just to see it in action. And these type of farms, they take 10, 20, 30 years to really establish themselves. And you build a pond and you you bulldoze some earth and you really have to let the earth just like sort of um, seal itself up and you can, I went to a permaculture class this morning and um, you, don't, you know, when you move the earth, you really don't want to leave it exposed. So you have to have a lot of planning involved to cover that back up. If you're going to be building some berms and contours of the land to help, you know, um, to help the land stay juicy, you know, and to hold water better. Um, you do have to have a strategy in place, and that's what I'm in right now. I'm doing. I'm moving a lot of land. I um, bought myself a small little tiny acre here, and I'm moving the land right now. And when I remove rocks and expose uh, soil, I have to cover it up. And I can either use um, municipal compost. I can use cardboard. I can I can just cover it back up with rocks. But um, right now, I've been just using um, a lot of cardboard, and then I throw the rocks on top of the cardboard, and I just, like, try to protect the earth. And that's where I'm at with my, my rock-clearing project. And I really didn't know what I was doing, and I was asking other people who did it before me, and they were like, you're not going to be moving the rocks far. You're going to be clearing them out of the way, but you're not going to be moving them far. And I discovered that, that was absolutely the truth after doing it for two, three, four weeks. I was wrecking my body trying to um, move the rocks uh, any type of distance beyond a few feet, but just to clear the um, the space to know where the boundaries and the edges are. That's basically where I'm at uh, in my little project. But to get back to uh, helping people with pain relief, um, I heard another really cool podcast this month, and I did have enough time to upload this clip, and it's a long clip. And if you are working with people who um, are using pain medication, many of them have been prescribed something called gabapentin. And it's for like idiopathic pains and doctors basically are giving this out to everyone. And it's sort of the nettles of um, say, you know, quote, safe pharmaceuticals. You know, like I've heard, you know, I've often hear this in my head that if someone's not sure of what type of herb might help them, they should start with stinging nettles. <laughs> and it seems like this drug gabapentin uh, has become the other thing. And the truth is, um, cannabis should be in the place that gabapentin is. It, you know, they should be just over-prescribing cannabis at this point and explaining to people, hey, you may have to try five or ten different types of cannabis. You may have to try different types of administration. You may have to, you may have to take responsibility for yourself. And the doctor's not going to say, you shall take two puffs off this vape pen three times a day. You know, it's not going to be that clear-cut. Maybe it'll be um, 
take one puff off a joint every three days, and that's enough um, medicine that you may need, you know. So it's funny that using something comforting and tonifying like the herb cannabis, marijuana, is um, not clear-cut. And um, I remember on this podcast I um, last year I, I was experimenting with making cannabis butter, and I made a really strong batch, and I made – I put it on ravioli and just totally overdid it. And, hey, those are the things that many of us are going to have to experience, you know, when we're using <laughs> edible cannabis is that extremely uncomfortable feeling of uh, eating too much cannabis, where right now I'm using a small MCT oil, uh, uh, CBD-rich oil, and the dose is one drop. You know, for me, it's one drop of this uh, MCT extracted. Um, so MCT, I think, is a, it's also called fractionated coconut oil, and it's um, become a, a popular solvent to um, make um, CBD and THC extracts. And, um, yeah, this one that I have is really wonderful, and it's just amazing that I don't know how many one-drop doses are in this one-ounce um, eyedropper bottle, but wow, um, I'm sure it's a lot um, less expensive than even the generic version of gabapentin, <laughs> which um, most people have tried gabapentin. It does absolutely no help for them, and I, I think this is a cool um, clip just to, gives you a little insight on what... Um, what happens in the pharmaceutical world and how they overprescribe things that I think it, what else is really interesting about cabapentin is you never hear about people being hurt by it. So, so that's why I think um, they, they just give it out to everybody. Let's say, you know, just throw this at the wall and see if it sticks. And it's kind of sad when you, when you think that many people, um, scientific, uh, high-tech medicine is the only thing that they consider. And I was listening to um, one of the, a Joe Rogan podcast. <laughs> we'll get to Joe Rogan maybe later on in the podcast. But um, he had um, Jordan Peterson's daughter, Michaelia, Michaelia Peterson, and she, she had um, autoimmune trouble since childhood, and she was given a lot of like the autoimmune drugs, which suppress immunity. And then at age 17, she ended up having to have a, like a full hip replacement and then um, another type of bone replacement. And I'm pretty sure that may have been not from any autoimmune disease she had, but from the medications that she was given, to, you know, when she flared up. Um, so, yeah, it's a really... I was almost going to take clips of that interview just to hear that viewpoint that, yeah, some people, they don't even consider that plants, herbs, food, nutrition, exercise, lifestyle could be used way, way before trying to try anything stupid, like um, let's go to the doctor and get gabapentin or let's go to the doctor and get some benzodiazepine. <laughs> and, um, but let me uh, play this. This is from the Reefer Madness podcast. And uh, it's, Episode 44 of the Reefer Madness podcast, and the episode was titled Gabba Gabba High, <laughs> and it's um, a 10-minute clip, and um, hope you enjoy it. 
but the, 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 the silent scream is just another really fascinating chemical that Dr. Mitchell is dealing with called ketamine, ketamine, ketamine. Okay, um, and it's not just for horses anymore. Uh, and that one was, he treat, those were all practitioners in the room and he was teaching them something called a Larson remover maneuver to open up your vocal cords if they've seized when you were given too much ketamine in say an emergency room, but we'll, we'll, we'll let him talk yeah, about no, that. Yeah, and I want to say, I don't use ketamine in my practice, right? And now I, but I, but in my practice, I work in rural, I work in remote remote stations, so we deal with a lot of medevacs, and when the medevac team comes in, ketamine is part of their practice, and they use it. So I've seen it used. I don't use it in my practice. So can you... Well, we, I, I do, yes. which, which is strange when you think about it. I'm not injecting, I'm not spraying it up anyone's noses. Uh, we use it in topical pain relief for neuropathic pain. So you've got that sciatic nerve pain, you've got that post-herpatic neuralgia. Um, we use it topically in a cream because it's an NMDA receptor antagonist, which lots of letters, there are different ways, different pain pathways that get stuff up to the brain. And most drugs, like all the opioids, say for maybe methadone, don't block uh, the NMDA receptor. Don't spill your coffee. And <laughs> you might as well make it obvious. Okay. <laughs> but, but ketamine does. So, you know, Whereas someone, we could give them a boatload of morphine and it won't affect their post-herpatic neuralgia. In some cases, we put a ketamine cream on it and it, it does dull that pain quite a bit. So, so, yeah. so ketamine, ketamine, ketamine. Yeah. So what class of drug is it? So, yeah, it's a lot of things, but it's probably a most, lot of things, a, a lot of things, okay. but it's probably most regularly known as a dissociative anesthetic. Okay, and and it helps. It basically, when people get ketamine, you is it like Versed in the sense that when you get it, your memory is gone, or is it just strictly pain management, or does it just put you to sleep? If it, it, I have ketamine and I go to sleep, do I still feel the pain? I guess that's what I'm asking. My understanding is no. So it, call it more the pain end of things. It makes you not aware of the pain or takes you somewhere else. Okay. Um, but and we'll let Doctor yeah. Mitchell get more into it. There's some other really fascinating things they're doing with ketamine, and I, you know, I had them on the phone. I couldn't resist asking them about sure. what else they're doing. Okay. So, but also, and I think this is important that we talk about this before we get into his interview. Let's talk about Gabby's. 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 So, I'll, we'll start with you because I know mm-hmm. how much you like the Gabby's. Kirk, how much do you, do you like the Gabby's up north? I'm, well, I don't like gabapentin. And again, if you go back to our earliest earliest episodes, I talk a lot about gabapentin as a drug that I, my understanding of it, now I'm not a pharmacist and in my practice I know, I know a fair bit about certain, certain medications that I am allowed to prescribe through protocol and some medications I, I do not prescribe and I do not have a lot of attention to. But Gabby's I'm not within my scope of practice, so I cannot prescribe it in my scope of practice. Any of your patients on it? Oh, gosh. <laughs> Gabby, what, what is it? Like, I think it's the 14th most uh, prescribed drug in America. I don't know what it is in Canada. It's up there. It's used in diabetic, for diabetic neuropathies. It's used for anxiety. It's used for all these things. I, call, I lump it generally under neuropathic or nerve-related pain, which, which honest people gets back to cannabis because well, we'll, we're, we're going to get to cannabis. We will get to cannabis. But I want to bash, bash Gabby's for a while. What, what angers me or gets me upset or gets me into my debating moves and posturing is 
gabapentin is used in the medical by the medical field off label. What does that mean, Trevor? When when somebody is using a medication off label, so so on label, uh, we call it, it has an indication. That means you know it's gone through rigorous testing, saying that that we have X number of studies saying this drug will treat this condition under these circumstances. You know, you use this dose of that drug and your blood pressure goes down this many points. Off-label is basically if you use it for anything else. So please expand on that, Trevor. <laughs> How is gabapentin, what is gabapentin first designed for? Okay, so I, I wrote, wrote it down so I'll make sure I get this right. So gabapentin mimics the neurotransmitter neurotransmitter GABA, G-A-B-A, but it doesn't actually affect the G-A-B-A or the GABA receptors, which was always a trick question in psychopharmacology. It inhibits the alpha-2 delta subunit of voltage-gated calcium channels. So it was originally marketed as a uh, seizure medication. Like anything that has seizures, give them gabapentin will work. Problem was it wasn't particularly good at that. So, and Dr. Mitchell gets more, more into this so he can be your new hero. Park Davis then said, well, if it's not a really good seizure medication, what else could we sell it for? And lately it's been just about everything. Any, so ner- and to give doctors their due, nerve pain is hard to treat. Neuropathic pain is hard to treat. So when, when we have you know, patients in the office complaining of pain, None of the three or four other things you've thrown at it have helped. Usually at some point, gabapentin comes out, let's try this. Well, and again, in my practice, uh, and I, I don't know exactly, but in my practice, around 2001, 2004, the early 2000s, my, um, fibromyalgia. Yeah. It became the, a, a thing. the thing. Now, I apologize for those people out there that if you had it in the 90s or the 80s, but in my practice, that's when I started seeing this stuff. And a lot of the medical practitioners I was working with didn't recognize it as a legitimate um, issue. It was people, it was all psychological. Well, it is still a uh, diagnosis of exclusion. If you can't figure out what else is wrong with someone, it's fibromyalgia. And and so a differential diagnosis, uh, that's how I refer to it in another rabbit hole. Sometimes doctors don't tell you what you have. What the doctors do is they tell you what you don't have. You don't have this, you don't have this, you don't have this. So the differential diagnosis is it must be this, right? So so fibromyalgia became this thing, and all of a sudden gabapentin is coming in as the cure-all. And we're just going to stop right there before we get all the angry emails. All of you out there who have fibromyalgia yeah, yeah, yeah. and suffer from yes. it, we are not denigrating. No. We, we know you have real pain. We're just... we're talking about doctors Art. doctors have some a condition that didn't exist a little while ago it suddenly exists and suddenly there's gabapentin now there's gabapentin and but 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 there was no studies done on gabapentins to say that gabapentin will work on fibromyalgia or nope. neuropathic pain. No, that's the definition of off-label. Right. So, but doctors started prescribing it, prescribing it, prescribing it. Now, in my practice, it's a hugely abused, hugely abused substance. Right, you get it, and 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 doctors are dealing this stuff out. And I say dealing, and I, and again, it's just I'm a nurse. I, I believe in holistic practices. I don't believe in just giving somebody something because they want it. However, I'll get to that in a minute. However, I've been in that situation, so I get it. But gabapentin is a drug. 
that doctors use and are comfortable with. But when you get into a conversation with, with doctors about cannabis, what's the first thing they'll tell you? No studies. No studies. So I go to them and say, so why are you using gabapentin off-label when there's no studies? And Parks Davis got sued hugely for misadvertising, and you're still using gabapentins. So what I think is really cool, we got this emergency doctor who's also a cannabis researcher, which I'd like to know more about. Uh, as I was listening to it, I'd like to know where he does his research. Did he talk to you about that, where he does his research? Really briefly. He's, he's okay. yet another guy that knows so much, he's probably two or three interviews. Yeah, no. It's, so, so he's an emerge doc out of Kamloops, and he... Doesn't like Gabby. I felt I felt like we should you, walk. You got vindicated. I had a friend in him. I, I wanted to walk down the road with him hand in hand uh, about gabapentins because I've been screaming about gabapentins, the use of it, and, and in the comparison of cannabis because I don't believe gabapentins being used properly, but yet doctors are very comfortable with it. Now, I will go back to my comment about doctors, and, and Dr. Um, either you mentioned it or Dr. Mitchell mentioned it, Sometimes patients just want something to feel like they have been treated. Right. Right. Now, I'm in my practice. I can, again, following protocols, ensuring that my assessment is correct so that I don't, I don't anger anybody out there, I can go and choose an antibiotic for an infection, right? So if you have a skin infection, I use a specific type, a Keflex or a Cephalospore. And if you have a, a bladder infection, I might use something else, a nitrofurantin, right? So I have to have that knowledge. Um, so sometimes patients will come in with a viral infection, an upper respiratory cough or cold, and they want an antibiotic. And I have to sit and talk to them about... It's not going to work. It's not going to work. Right. So, but they want to walk away with something. So I can, I understand, and I've had these conversations with medical practitioners. Sometimes they would just prescribe something to get the person out of their office. Now, I'm not a doctor. I've had these conversations. It is hearsay, but I know what happens. And I think Gabby's is one of those drugs that sometimes they just say, enough. Here's your 60. You get them, you get 60 a month. Get out of my office. Well, and to give the doctors their due, I'm sure there is that, but there is also the doctors are rightfully being told to prescribe way less opioids. Well, so, so again, we have you literally have a patient in pain in your office, and you know this whole class of drugs you're being told not to prescribe, and the patient wants something. They are in legitimate pain. I, I don't know if I, cannabis. Okay, yeah, so that was episode 44 of the Reefer Medness podcast. I believe it's reefermed.ca. At the beginning of the clip, he, he pronounced it ketamine, and I was like, oh, is that how they say it in Canada? And then, then he uh, corrected by saying ketamine uh, later on. But ketamine does seem to be more widely prescribed. I think it, it has, uh, at least in the United States, only been recently sort of approved, and it's uh, helping many, many people with pain syndromes and um, real pain or whatever um, type of pain you want to describe it. Uh, those idiopathic and nerve-related pains are very difficult, and oftentimes opioids and even cannabis don't, don't, doesn't help something, some types of pain. So it's wonderful that uh, a drug like ketamine is helping people as opposed to something kind of really useless uh, as gabapentin because um, I've been around and I've talked to lots of people 
And I never heard of anyone really helped uh, in any long-term way by gabapentin. I think it does um, uh, produce some types of uh, side effects, <laughs> but um, you know, perhaps it, it um, like many things that help people deal with pain, perhaps it just puts it into a different perspective. But I wanted to get back to um, this permaculture farm, uh, sort of little co-op garden that I've um, become affiliated with. And I was giving the tour of um, all the aquaponics and the aquaculture where there's um, tilapia in ponds. And there's a solar water pump that runs this water through the pond. And then it also feeds the plants, or um, I'm not sure if it's done automatically, but the sludge from the tilapia and the fish is uh, just this amazing plant food. And um, it's just marvelous to see these human systems that could be built to um, support little oases and Edens. And um, it is really, I feel very inspired today because I just did come from a, a permaculture class, which is held free in the Pune district at a place called Hawaiian Sanctuary. And um, yeah, if you go on their website and you're visiting the Big Island, perhaps you can attend one of these classes. They usually hold them on Thursdays at 9 a.m. And um, today was wonderful. The person who designed or helped design the Hawaiian Sanctuary was there teaching the class. And he just gave a real elementary outline of what permaculture is. And it kind of renewed my interest in how um, the action is on the edges. And um, it's really cool when you look at how paths and borders and edges, that's where, that's where we, we as human beings can really do, do a lot of good, you know, um, with our gardening and instead of um, mowing everything down and, you know, turn, you know, having these square, ugly gardens and instead of just having gardens that sort of grow themselves and you just give them a little occasional help, a little worm poop and, um, love and um, what else is really cool too is when we fence in plants we're really just totally beaming love on them you know even if we're using petrochemical nylon nets I tell you those plants are totally beaming not to be um, attacked and to have that sanctuary away from all the things in Hawaii that could attack plants and so right now um, I'm helping them build some um, screen roofs and just little rain shelters. So sheltering plants is a lot of fun because um, they, re they respond in such favorable ways. And it is, it is a fun dichotomy that we're using petrochemical plastic uh, type things to protect plants and make them grow you know, bigger and stronger. And um, I've been thinking a lot about the economies of scale that when we stop using petrochemicals as fuel to do our transportation, it, it becomes just another raw material that you can make stuff out of. That um, perhaps there is like a thousand years left of plastic. <laughs> I don't know. You know what I mean? Like when you think of the economy that if there's, you know, 10 billion people for the next thousand years, I don't know. And I'm pretty sure that um, there will be more plastic renewing in the future where people will be more conscious of um, sorting plastics and reusing them in, instead of just um, 
turning them into landfill uh, fodder, unsorted. I don't know. That's I I know I'm not the only one that that obsesses about using too much plastic, but um, it is a wonderful gift to have, and oh boy, it's it's a lot of fun to watch these plants grow. And um, there is some br- brutal conditions down here in um, and um, it, it's kind of cool to see how human beings help and uh, try not to hinder and poison <laughs> too much. But um, when you think about the plastics that are in the ocean, I'm sure it all starts out with um, organic hippies thinking it's cool to, you know, drape nylon netting on their plants, and then it, it gets blown into the ocean <laughs> and causes um, garbage barges. But what makes me, I think, a lot of that ocean plastic is not just incidental stuff that's blowing in the wind, like, you know, your six-pack thing that you know, blew away. I don't think that's where it all comes from. It comes from like intentionally taking barges of garbage and dumping them into into the ocean. That's where those plastic, you know, so that was something that, you know, concerns me the way people um, treat their shit and treat their refuse. And I don't know, I think I can also fall into a a feeling of, um, self-righteousness and judgment because I feel bad about it myself every time um, we're using these items that just turn right into landfill stuff in a, in a very short amount of time. And um, I saw this thing that I could not unsee, and it was just this village in China that their sole economy was just like melting down electronic waste. And they had just like these flaming puddles of different types of metals all over the, all over the town and just like you, it was a video and you could see the miasma <laughs> I, I love that word miasma and I th- believe it's like you know poisonous vapors <laughs> I think that's the meaning of it sort of stinky vapors the miasma but um yeah it, it is um interesting you know that around the world there's places that subsist on garbage and they people um in peru there was a garbage dump there where people are born there and they die there and they just live in a garbage dump and um yeah it's wild to have traveled a little bit since my late 30s i bought a passport i think when i was 38 years old and i went and saw some countries and it totally fixed the way I think of politics and power and, you know, how useful the government is to people, you know, and I am not an anti-government person. So I'll begin the talk. I put on the promotion of the podcast that I would talk about the psychology of a swing voter. And I suppose I would be a swing voter and I'm very uh, libertarian minded. I'm for um, the legalization of uh, abortion, guns, drugs, Uh, I'm very pro-freedom. I was very happy living in Florida because it had like this feeling of lawlessness and lack of control and people sort of accepting that, yeah, there's a lack of control here and (laughs) they just go with it. And um, I was told the people that are from Mexico and live south of the border, they feel that type of like freedom down, down there too, even though we as Americans were sort of brainwashed to think that, oh, don't go to Mexico, you'll be killed instantly, you know. 
And I really have been raised with that type of um, bias and judgment about our, our very most southern neighbor, you know, Mexico. And I think it was up until like maybe five or ten years ago that I never entered Canada. And then I, a um, number of years ago, I had an opportunity to go to the, um, the Pacific Rim College to study and take a community herbalist class, which was uh, three months long. So I got to actually live in Canada. And, um, but I still maintain sort of this bias. I, I don't think I want to go to Mexico because we're just totally um, bombarded with this, like, wow, xenophobia, definitely a xenophobia. But, um, but I, I have been to Peru and uh, a few of the countries in Europe, and it, it's kind of cool to, to see the way the government takes care of people in more socialist places. And to know, yeah, there's a dark side to socialism. And I think that's the other thing that we're raised with is like, oh, socialism is always bad. But we were just talking about ketamine. And I think ketamine right now is being spread through a socialist system, where, which is the Veterans Administration, which is responsible for a lot of people's health care. And in many, many ways, you know, the United States already is a socialist country. So... Perhaps that will be the ultimate fear, though, that people would no, never vote for a democratic socialist, and Donald Trump may get more votes again this time. And when I say more votes, I mean in the right states, in those right red states that have enough uh, electoral votes. And I don't know. My opinion is I support the electoral vote system because it shows that we have a diversity, which we we think the person that lives in Wyoming does have an equal stake in this, and they should be given um, an equal voice per square footage. And um, I kind of support um, an electoral system of politics. But um, in the past month, I was really, uh, I found out that Joe Rogan was given like this um, excerpt on the Bernie Sanders campaign website that, yeah, if he was going to vote for anyone, he he considers himself sort of a political agnostic atheist, you know, where he doesn't even vote. But he's like, hey, if I was going to vote for someone, I'd vote for someone whose message was the same it was four years ago. And it doesn't change, like, from month to month. And I was listening to um, a YouTube from four years ago uh, when Bernie Sanders lost the Iowa um, primary four years ago. And it was kind of funny because he was in a room probably with more than a thousand people just screaming. For, and uh, Hillary Clinton, who actually won um, the equal amount of counties and 0.2% more of the popular vote, she was declaring victory in a room that sounded silent in comparison. But I was, uh, if I had more time, I was almost going to pull those clips just to show. But I don't know if it would have been fair because one came from ABC News and one came from PBS. So these media firms, they really could adjust the, the sound of the audiences and really very manipulative it, during the election process to show who is more popular or who, who has noisier supporters. I don't know. <laughs> Screaming, irrational, uh, crazy, young, millennial socialist supporters. But um, I think um, the psychology of a swing voter is many swing voters did vote for Donald Trump in 2016. And I think um, 
we have nothing um, to gain by um, putting up a, can, uh, uh, um, a rational candidate. We should counter Donald Trump with another irrational candidate. And um, I would say irrational meaning people could not possibly dream of a, a Jewish socialist being the president or even the vice president. So I don't know what to think of um, except this week was the Iowa uh, caucus, the primary, and the results were pretty much identical from the one in 2016 where um, both candidates shared pretty much 50% of each vote. You know, so Bernie Sanders had um, a little bit more than Pete Buttigieg, and I think it's by the the decimal points of a percentage. And uh, really interesting, you know, um, and I don't, I don't have a cynical viewpoint that, oh, it's all fixed or nothing. I think, no, they count the votes and, those, and it goes down to the point, you know, the decimal point of one percentage and they tell you who got what, what amount of votes and that's the way you know, power and government is constructed and maintained in this country and I um, just hope people don't sound so whiny when they lose and because um, I think that that doesn't help <laughs> to be a sore loser. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, it was a pretty interesting week, though, and I love talking about politics every now and then. I think it's fascinating because I'm a student of history, and I always like to compare, like, what happened in the primary of 2016, and now we have YouTube, and we can just bring it right up, and we can see both um, Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders' acceptance and... Um, acceptance speeches after that primary that existed four years ago. And then this one, which got all complicated. And um, I heard another really cool little excerpt of Wolf Blitzer interviewing, you know, just harassing one of the campaign workers in Iowa. And then the, I guess the campaign worker was in charge of stuff. And they were on the phone with Wolf Blitzer. And they needed to um, submit their numbers, and they couldn't get through, and they were on hold. And they're on a party line with Wolf Flitzer, and they end up getting hung up on, and they're not even able to report their number, and they have to get back in the in the line where people were, you know, staying on hold for an hour. <laughs> interesting. The world's an interesting place, and oftentimes if current events don't depress me or anger me. They, they do kind of amuse me and um, engage me. And I am, um, I do have a firm belief though that when you have um, a grasp on history, uh, you're more likely to be less hysterical and less um, predictive that, oh, it's gonna happen this way. Cause no, um, it happens the way it happens. And often does, history does repeat itself. And it was cool to see that it, it pretty much repeated itself down to the point one decimal point where there were two uh, Democratic candidates and they both got basically 49% of the vote. So um, that's what I wanted to talk about. But uh, in the world of herbs, I'm really enjoying making herb vinegars. I um, have a big bag of dried lemon balm and that's my latest favorite that I've like, and I also have a, a bag of dried uh, rosemary, which it makes a really delicious vinegar. And I was taught, and I do believe that the main um, nutritional benefit of herb vinegars is 
uh, you're increasing your minerals in, in your food, and it's just a delightful way to use vinegar. It seems healthier in some way. It just seems more fortifying, where I think eating a plain vinegar or vinegar that's devoid of things is uh, quite boring. And um, I just made a, a plate of poached eggs with some of the lemon balm vinegar. And, yeah, they discolored the poached eggs, but... Um, really a lot of fun and I think herbs should be fun they should taste good and I, I really enjoy working and making medicines and being very um, um, led by my senses and uh, so I've been on um, using this MCT uh, cannabis tincture that's been made locally here and uh, at first, it does seem that the MCT uh, kind of almost has like a rancid taste to it. So, I don't know. I'd, I'd like to make it again using a different type of MCT oil. Or maybe they use the high setting on the crock pot instead of the low. But I was told when it comes to MCT oil and uh, using it as a solvent that it could you know, maintain temperatures up to 350 Degrees, and I think if you go above these smoking points of the oils, they do turn rancid. But I don't think um, cannabis is really, um, I don't think the effectiveness of uh, cannabinoids um, matters that much, even if, if the oil was rancid. So I think you have to use what you have. But um, this was given to me just to test, and it's, it's quite strong. And by um, extracting the cannabis into two batches. They use a CBD and then they use a THC. And I think they do use um, different times and temperatures for extracting. But you could just put um, uh, cannabis uh, in an oven and decarboxylate it uh, at a 240 degrees in some tinfoil. And then just stick it in oil and leave it there as long as you want. <laughs> I don't think that even matters. But I, as all herb medicines, they, you know, year by year, they go down a little bit. But if they're kept in a cool, dark place, they last years and years and years. And oftentimes, especially when it, getting back to vinegars, is I'll forget about a vinegar. And a year and a half later, I'm like, whoa. This one is really good, and it does, if you're into magic and working with magical herbs, there is something magical going on when you make herb vinegars, and I encourage everyone out there who's uh, into herbs and making things and uh, cooking to, you know, infuse, if you have access to um, lots of dried herbs, um, I encourage you to, to be a simple herbalist and use one herb at a time. So do an oregano vinegar. I've done those before. They're really, so all the mints make really great vinegars. And even though I'm a fan of using Italian seasoning, which is like rosemary, you know, the Simon and Garfunkel <laughs> type uh, selection of herbs as like a, you know, table condiment. When it comes to making the herb vinegars, I only use like one herb at a time. So I think that's all I want to share tonight on the show. I, mean, I, I slacked off and didn't um, make any more clips. So I think I'm just going to end the show now. 
and perhaps when I get back here in early March, I'll have a lot more clips, and I've enjoyed the time, and I think I'll get back on this horse. I was away for two months, but uh, I'm back into it. I, w one of the fears that I had about not doing a show every single month was, oh, you'll, you'll lose the desire to do it, but I've not lost the desire to do this show, so I, it really is cool to have that, to be in touch with that feeling sense that says, yeah, I feel that this is a way more fun way to communicate in as a live broadcast on a regular basis. Just put it out there, see the pants flying. But again, I can do it probably better by doing an outline and then just filling in the blanks. So um, today was a pretty busy day for me. I was on driving. I went all the way to the Pune district, came back to the Kyle district, and um, I did a round trip to go to that permaculture class. So just made the point to do a show, and I showed up. And I'm happy for everyone that's in the audience. Again, if you want to communicate with me, uh, my name is Sean, S-E-A-N. Uh, I'm on Facebook. My last name is M-U-R-N-I-N. And my uh, Instagram is called Big Island Botanica, all one word with no spaces. And I look forward to communicating with everybody. Uh, so you can email me at peoplesmedicineshow at gmail.com. And this is called the People's Medicine Show. So if there's lots of people doing this show, and it, even if you have uh, two hours worth of clips and you want to send them all in to me, uh, it could be your two hours if you want. This is the People's Medicine Show. So... If you need help uh, editing clips, just tell me where they are and tell me the times that you want them cut down to. And I'd be more than happy to play some contributions from anyone who listens or anybody who wants to start doing their own version of the People's Medicine Show. So aloha, and I'll see you soon.